Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, don't mix religion and politics, we're told. Separate church and state. Many people, it seems, want our leaders to be religious, but not too religious. To be personal, personally religious, but publicly secular. To have their religion inform their personal values, but not their public policies. So we see this spectacle of candidates for office trying to walk a very small tightrope and not fall off on one side or the other. And it can be kind of tricky. Again, we're told don't mix politics and religion. And that's why the religious Pharisees and the political Herodians thought they had cooked up the perfect plot to entangle and catch Jesus in his words. This isn't the first time that each had tried, but every time before this had failed. They couldn't get him as a political subversive because his kingdom was not of this world. He wouldn't get tangled up in that. And they couldn't get him with religious questions. He was too knowledgeable for that. So they would mix the two. For surely he'd have to choose and disappoint or anger one side and the other or the other. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But whereas we sometimes have trouble with the relationship between the church and the state, God has no such problems. For both church and state are his creation. Both are his kingdoms through which he works and rules for the good of his people and his church. And both receive their authority from him though each has a different authority. The state, or what is called the kingdom of the left, rules with the authority of the law. And the church, what is called the kingdom of the right, rules with the authority of the gospel. And both are blessings of God, which are not the same, but are also not opposed. They're complementary. Each has its place. Each has its rule. Each has its own specific vocation. We see a glimpse of this in the words of the prophet Isaiah that we heard earlier in our Old Testament text. Words where God is addressing Cyrus, the king of Persia. And though Cyrus does not know God, God calls him his anointed one and is using him for the sake of Jacob and Israel. Just as God had used the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon to discipline his people and take them away as prisoners of war, so now he's using Cyrus to release his people and return them to their land. That's the political reality, the kingdom of the left reality. But there's another reason too, a kingdom of the right reason. That through all this, God was revealing himself to Cyrus. That he and his people might know that he is the Lord and there is no other. That his temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt and his name once again proclaimed to all nations and all peoples. And that ultimately his son, the true anointed one, the true temple, 
would be born in Bethlehem. That as the Lord spoke through Isaiah, all may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Paul saw this played out in the lives of the Thessalonians. They were bearing witness to the world how to live serving the one living true God without becoming confused about how this plays out in day-to-day living. Two kingdoms, distinct but not separate, for each has its place and both under God, the one living and true God, who uses both for our good. And so what the Pharisees and the Herodians thought was the perfect question, the, the perfect trap to entangle Jesus in his words, was really no problem at all for Jesus. But for us, all too often, it isn't that easy, is it? But Jesus proclaims God's truth. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Hypocrites, for they themselves have mixed together what they expect Jesus to keep apart. Show me the coin for the tax. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's? Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So, yeah, you've got to pay your taxes. Even if you don't like Caesar, even if you don't like the government, God can use whatever Caesar we throw at him. So that's perhaps the easy part of understanding Jesus' words here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, we've got that. Easy enough, right? But render to God the things that are God's. What are the things of God? What are we to render to him? What does he expect from us? Perhaps you're thinking obedience, good works, the Ten Commandments, and all that. Or maybe since we're on the topic of money here, maybe you're thinking about tithing and giving to God the share of your income that is his. Now, those are not bad answers. In fact, uh, it's certainly good works are important. Tithing and our offerings to God are certainly important. But perhaps it'd be better to stick with Jesus' words and ask ourselves, whose likeness and inscription is this? Or where is God's likeness and inscription in this world? To give him what is his. And the answer to that lies in the question, for the word translated there as likeness is, is the word icon or image. So if a coin, if it's a coin that bears Caesar's image, what is it in this world that is made in God's image and likeness and that bears his inscription? Phrased in that way, you certainly know the answer, right? It's you. It's me. In the beginning, God made man in his image and likeness. And in holy baptism, he has inscribed his name upon you. You belong to him. The things of this world are not what God is interested in. His kingdom is not of this world. He wants you. Always you. All of you. 
He wants your undivided heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants your uncompromised fear, love, and trust in him above all things. He wants you to serve the only living and true God. Too often, we stick with the coins, though, don't we? It's easier, less involvement, less threatening. Repentance and faith, holy living, investing yourself, giving yourself, that's certainly harder. But that is, in fact, why Jesus was there that day, sparring with the Pharisees and the Herodians. He was there for you, giving himself for you, all of himself for you. Because this epistle, this episode uh, took place around 72 hours before Jesus would lay down his life for you on the cross. To redeem you, as we confess along with in, in Luther's catechism, not with silver or gold coins, but with his holy precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death. And in laying down his life as the perfect lamb of God on the altar of the cross, to render unto God the perfect sacrifice that's due for your sin and mine. The, that the image that was lost in us by sin would be restored to us in forgiveness. That our life that will end in death will be raised to life again, first in holy baptism, and then in our resurrection from the grave to eternal life. That even now, we live a new life. That even now, we begin to give ourselves, living the Christ life, the image of God life. That even now, we serve confessing one truth. Our lives bear the image of the only living and true God. It's not about money here with Jesus. It's about the cross. It's about life in the midst of death. It's about false gods and false life versus the true God and true life. And so you render to God the things that are God's when you come here in repentance and faith to receive his forgiveness, his life, his spirit. And you render to God the things that are God's when you take that forgiveness, when you take that life and spirit that you have received here in faith and you serve your neighbor in love. We are to be, as St. Paul said, imitators of him and the apostles and of the Lord. As long as you live in this world, you live in two kingdoms. And you render under Caesar, but knowing that you don't belong to him. You belong to God. The one who created you and recreated you, who bought you with a price. Because not on coins did he put his image, he put his image on you. And not for a worldly kingdom did he die but he died for you so that we might live once again from the catechism in every aspect of life that you would be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. And so now for you, he comes once again in the bread and wine of his holy supper. That eating his body and drinking his blood, his image would be renewed in you and his life and love strengthened in you through the forgiveness of your sins. 
giving you all that he is and all that he has. That with he and you and you in him, you begin to live now that life that has no end. And with his name on you and his spirit in you, that's exactly the life that you do live. Serving the only living and true God with all that you are now in this life and for all eternity. In our gospel text, when, the, when they heard Jesus' answer, they marveled. And the same is true for us today. As we look at the cross, as we look at the altar, as we hear the wonderful words of our Savior, when he says to us, I baptize you, you are mine. I forgive you all of your sins. This is my body, this is my blood. We hear and we see and we marvel. This is the Lord's answer to our greatest need. Words that don't entangle, but rather words that set us free. Free to live, free to love, free to serve. Free to render to God the things that are God's. Amen.